We're going to finish up Colossians 3, if you'll turn there, please. Our union with Christ. Beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, If you then were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication or language out of your mouth. I switched from King James to New King James, and I'm still reading King James. Uh, That's good, isn't it? Do not lie one to another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge, according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. And Father, we just ask you that you will open your word up to us and ask that you'll give us an understanding and that we can walk in your truth and that you'll enable us to do that by the power of your spirit as we trust in you. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. The last time we showed that the context of Paul's admonitions here, really verses 8 through 17, it's the context and what he's talking about is life in the church. So he's talking about this is how the people in Colossae should relate to each other. For instance, we can just look at all the one another's. There's a lot of one another's in the New Testament, but look in verse 9, he says, just to show this, he's talking about life in the church. He says, verse 9, do not lie one to another. In verse 13, he says, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And then down in verse 16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. So he's mainly talking about church relationships, how to live like a Christian within the church. But that doesn't mean that the sins that he talks about in verse 8 and verse 5, you know, like when you're out of the church, it's okay to display them. So you certainly shouldn't get angry, exasperated, and have ill will or slander anyone at any time. It doesn't matter whether you're at church, whether you're at work, whether you're at school. We obviously know that. But I think his main emphasis here is in the church. But he's telling the Colossians, don't do it anywhere. He's saying, just put off all those old sins. And that word put off, 
He's saying you take it off like it's a set of dirty old clothes. That's what that Greek word put off means. It literally is a word that means to strip off your clothes or it could be to strip off armor or you're just taking it off. You know, like my mom, when I grew up, there was a creek just right next to our house. There was a park and a creek and a woods and we'd get rolling around that creek and get all muddy and... You know, she'd get in when I was a kid, and she's like, as soon as she'd see us coming in the door, you take those old nasty clothes off. You know, my kids in this house wear clean clothes. <laughs> That's what Paul's telling them. So he's saying there, look in verse 8, he's saying, but now you yourselves are to put off all these. And in verse 9, he basically says the same thing. He says, do not lie one to another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. He's saying your old identity, your old man, in other words, your old set of clothes, he's saying you take them off, strip <laughs> of all those sins. So fornication, unclean thoughts, lust, anger, wrath, slander, all of that filthy language, he's saying take those old, dirty, smelly, ratty clothes off and throw them in the corner, or I would say better yet, burn them. <laughs> throw them in the fireplace. But the thing is, He's not telling you once you take them off. He's saying, look, but don't stand there naked. Don't stand there naked with nothing. Put on your new clothes. Put on the new man. And that's what he says in verse 10. You've put off the old man with his deeds. And he says, but you have put on the new man. You've put on those new clothes, your new identity, your new set of clothes. And they speak, those clothes speak of who you are, who you are. There actually is a website, this company, their name is called the Identity Clothing Company, an online clothing company. They believe your clothes reveal your identity, and they're trying to, actually, though, they don't just have clothes for any identity. They are trying to mold your identity, even though they don't say they are. But here's their pledge, the Identity Clothing Company. This is their pledge. Identity's goal is to shine the spotlight on those who look away from conformity and are not afraid to be themselves. And I'm reading that, I'm thinking, you know what? I think the Apostle Paul, if he would read that, he would say, amen. I couldn't agree more. Look away from conformity and don't be afraid to be yourselves. Because that's what he says in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. He'd be like, don't be afraid to be conformed. He's saying, don't be conformed to the world. Because they're angry, slanderous, unclean, lustful. He's saying, but be transformed. Be a butterfly in the midst of a bunch of worms. Be yourself. Don't be afraid to be yourself. And this is their pledge. It went on to say this, the Identity Clothing Company. They went on to say, we want to encourage everyone to pursue, they literally use these words, to pursue their own identity and to, quote, please be you. And I think Paul would again be like, man, I once again, I just couldn't agree with you more. Colossians, Shelbavillians, pursue, that's what they said, pursue your own identity. I think Paul would say that, and please be you. Because that's what we read in Colossians 3.1, seek your own identity. If you then were raised with Christ, he says, seek those things which are above. Pursue that identity. Isn't that what we're talking about? And then he says, and then they said, please be you. And that's what Paul would say. Please be you. <laughs> Put on the clothes. This is you of tender mercies, kindness, long suffering, meekness. In other words, be yourself. I think he would like that, actually. <laughs> and that's what we're looking at here. Paul is realistic, isn't he, though? I mean, the New Testament in the Bible is realistic because he knows it's not going to be easy. 
And part of the reason it's not going to be easy is the Church of Colossae is made up of a group of people that really didn't get along and actually hated each other as far as when they were in the world. And we talked about that some last time, but look again at verse 11. He says, where there is neither, this is what the body is made of, neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but he says Christ is all and in all. And Greeks and Jews back in that day, the Jews never have gotten along with a lot of groups, but they didn't like them back then. Greeks and Jews didn't get along. And the Greeks considered the barbarians, they were uncultured. If you remember, they just were uncultured. Their, their language sounded to them like bar, 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 and they called them bar, barbarians. That's how they got the name. And the Scythians, they were in the south, the barbarians. The Scythians lived up north near the Black Sea, and they considered those people to just be ruthless and savage. I started to read a book on eastern Kentucky, some of those people in the hills, and I'm telling you, they can be that way. They are a law unto themselves. You know, that's how we would look at them, yeah, those eastern Kentucky hillbillies. I wouldn't call them that, but some people might look at them. I don't know. They can be ruthless and savage, can't they? Pretty rough group. Or, you know, down south, you have those people, they call them swamp people. It's the same kind of idea. It's like you've got a mixture here all coming together, barbarians and Scythians and Jews and Greeks. And I mean, you put all that mixed together in a church and you've got problems or could potentially. I'm not saying you should. You shouldn't. That's his point. The first church I went to, it was an international group. I mean, we had uh, Ethiopians, we had Kenyans. My first pastor was an ex-Black Panther. And he told me, he said, I'm just going to tell you, you were the kind of guy that if you would have walked into my high school, me and another guy were just waiting, we'd have jumped you and beat the snot out of you. And I'm like, I believe you. <laughs> but, you know, when you become in a church and in a body, all that stuff disappears. That's kind of what Paul's point is here. Because he's saying the one thing, you have all those differences in the world, you all would have never gotten along. You would have never gotten together. But he says, there's one thing that should bind you all together, and that is Christ is all and Christ is in all. If you're really a Christian, Jesus should be everything to you. No one should have your devotion, your affection, your loyalty, or our hearts like Jesus. We should be able to say that of each other, that he is all. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, and honor and glory and blessings. That's the song we're all going to be singing for eternity. That's what heaven's going to be like. Everyone's going to be like that. But not only is he all, but he is in all. Now, you can't always just tell that Christ is in someone by their outward looks, can you? You can't go by the quality of their clothes. You can't go by their accent or their looks. You know, when I go into prison, I meet guys in there, and if I just went by my first impression or their looks, some of these guys have for 40, 30, some of them even 25 years. The lifestyle they led has just outwardly worn their outward man out. I mean, they just look rough. Now, this isn't all of them, but there's some of them, though, the ones that are truly born again. They look that way outwardly, but you can tell Christ is in them because there's a brightness to their eyes. When they start talking, their eyes, they light up. And things they say, you talk to somebody long enough, and if you're born again, they talk long enough, you're going to realize whether they really are or they're just religious. It doesn't take that long or that much of a conversation. You all know what I'm saying? Somebody can say the right words so long, but after a while, things start coming out that you realize there's a problem here. Some of these guys may look rough, 
So to tell Christ is in all, that's kind of Paul's point here. You got all these different people and they look different, would address different, different jobs, but Christ is in them. We look around here, Tom used to talk about this all the time, and it's true. We have quite a variety, even still. We got north and south. We got college and dropouts, and I've been on both sides of that one, so I'm not saying that as a put out. We got engineers and painters, and what can I say? Ah, we're one. John Steele used to always say, you know, painting's under the curse. I'm like, well, gives me paychecks too. <laughs> but he was close, right? He's saying that's pretty far down there. But the one thing that we all, no matter what, have in common should be that Jesus dwells in us. And that should be, it's easy to say, easy to preach, but it's hard to do. That should be the predominant thing that when we view our fellowship, that is how we see people. That we have the same identity and in a sense the same culture. I read this illustration and I thought made that point pretty good. There was this famous murder trial for our brethren in England, though like this, that took place in London. It was several years back. It was in all the papers. Uh, this murder took place in a Chinese restaurant. And one of the waiters was a key prosecution witness because he was only a few feet away from where the murder happened, where the crime had been committed. So the prosecuting attorney, and I don't understand why he didn't question him better before he brought him into the courtroom, but he didn't. <laughs> the prosecuting attorney brought him in the courtroom and asked him if he was able to recognize in court the person who had committed the murder. And here's the waiter's response. It stunned everybody in there. He says, he apologized. He says, I'm just, I'm unable to identify him. And the prosecuting attorney's like, you got to be kidding me. And he keeps pressing him with some more questions. It's like, the guy's like, I'm sorry. Here was his answer. He said, I am very sorry. Sure, he said it with a Chinese accent. He says, but I cannot identify the man. He says, you see, all Englishmen look alike to me. <laughs> now, we laugh at that, but if it had been reversed, we would say the same thing about Chinese or Mexicans or whatever until you get used to looking at them. We can distinguish white people, right? but to them, they all look the same. And the reason you can't distinguish people is because you're seeing the traits they all have in common, not what they don't have in common. That's what strikes you. And the point I'm saying in, in, in giving that illustration is that's how we should look at each other. So, yeah, we have a lot of things not in common, but we should be seeing each other by the things we have in common. Only see what we have in common. So, you know, there's certain people at church it's just easier to hang around, easier to like, because you have a lot of common interest and background. Greg and I, he's not here, but we, we've been best friends for, I mean, over 50 years. And we share a lot of the same interest, a lot of the same background, a lot of the same friends, and a lot of the same bad humor. <laughs> but it's easy for us to get along, besides the Lord, because we had other friends that both of us had that they don't have anything to do with us now. But there's other members, you other members in here, that consider me a barbarian from the north, you should still be able to fellowship with me and love me, not because of my accent, not because you like my wife's cooking, but because Christ is living in me and doing a work in me. And it's the same when I look at you, no matter who it is in here. I have to say, if Jesus is willing to live in you and love you, then I need to be willing to live with you and love you. Amen? Because that's what he's saying. That's what Paul's saying here. Christ is all and he is in all. We're doing communion. That's really what a major part of communion is all about, isn't it? If you would put something there in Colossians 3 and turn to 1 Corinthians 10. 
saying Christ is all and in all. And that's what communion represents part of it. We have 1 Corinthians 10, and beginning in verse 14, Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And he said, I speak as the wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Look what he says in verse 17. For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. So when he speaks of the bread and cup, Paul uses the word communion. And the word for communion is the Greek word koinonia. And we all know koinonia means fellowship or a sharing. So the question becomes then, is the communion he's talking about here with the bread and cup, is that a communion between us and the Lord as we partake or between each other as we partake? And the answer to that is yes, because it really is both. So think about the first communion in the upper room. Who hosted the first communion? Not the one at the Catholic Church you had when you were seven, Mr. Root, but the first communion way back. Who hosted that? Jesus did, didn't he? He was physically present there handing out the elements, wasn't he? We don't believe in transubstantiation. It doesn't become his literal body and blood. We'll get that out of the way. But he's there. And is he not here today? Doesn't it say where two or three are gathered? You know, we have to hand it out. But Jesus is here hosting our communion, isn't he? He's fellowshipping with us. He's in here in our presence. Just because we can't see him doesn't mean it's not just as real as it was back in Palestine 2,000 years ago. Amen? The other thing is, when he does that, it's like they say it's symbolic, isn't it? Do this in memory of me. But it's not just symbolic, is it? Because it's symbolic because it represents a reality. He is in us. He is here. He is ministering. The effects of that bread, the broken body and the blood, he can still minister to us through partaking of that communion. It, I mean, I've heard of accounts of people being healed or your faith could be strengthened. I mean, saying God can spiritually do what the bread and cup represents, that we're partaking of it. He's in us. He can minister to us through that, can he? And through his word, that's how it works. But not only that, we're also fellowshipping and sharing with one another the bread and the cup. As we've been taught in the past, the pieces of bread that we have, in reality, they represent one loaf. We're not breaking off like he would have done, and it's done in some places, but in reality, that's what it represents, pieces of bread that were broken from one loaf, the body of Christ. When we all partake, those that do, that one loaf is in each of us. That's what he's saying in verse 17. We'll just look at it again. For we, though many, there's many of us in here, but we're one bread and one body because for we all partake of that one bread. We're all partners, so to speak. We're having fellowship in the one loaf. That bread and cup does what? It binds us all together, doesn't it? It makes us all one in that sense. It's like a binding. We're in covenant together through that. You know, and in verse 16, where it says there, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? This one theologian I like, he wrote this about that. He said, Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant. And he's saying the language almost certainly refers to their sharing in the provisions and benefits of that covenant. This also means they didn't consider their table or their altar to be where a sacrifice took place, like the Catholics would. 
You know, they're sacrificing Jesus every week or every mass when they have it. But he says this. This is what we need to hear. But a fellowship meal or our communion is where the presence of the Spirit, they were there by faith looking back to the one sacrifice that had been made and were thus realizing again its benefits in their lives. And in this way, he's saying, they shared in the blood of Christ. And that's what happens. The communion we're sharing today, it not only speaks of the death of the Lord Jesus and what he accomplished on our behalf. It does do that. But it also speaks of a purpose he had in dying. And that is to call out a group of people, a special people, and by the blood and the covenant of the body and the blood, bring them together as one. That's what it represents. That's why, because of that, this oneness, this unity, this people... It represents, that's why Paul says, if you go over to 1 Corinthians 11, in verses 17 to 22, he says this, he says, now in giving the instructions, he says, I do not praise you since you come together. That means come together as a church. He says, not for the better. It shouldn't be for the better. He says, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, he says, I hear that there are divisions among you. He says, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. And he's like, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. And he goes on down in verse 27. He says, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And for this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. Paul, going back a little bit. He's not happy that there were divisions. Look what he says in verse 18. He says, for first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And then in verse 19, he says, but there also must be factions among you. Talks about factions. What are factions? Factions are those that have destructive opinions about others that lead to dissension. And dissension is disagreement that leads to discord. That's what he's talking about. In other words, Paul is saying that he has heard that there are those in Corinth who have opinions about some in the church that were destructive and that led to discord or divisions. And he's saying, I'm not going to praise you for that. It's going to be just the opposite. In this case, what was causing that was we talked all that about there's bond-free, Scythian, Jew, Greek. 
There was all these divisions in that society, just like there is today. And he's saying, you all are bringing that. Everyone should be equal and have the same care and love for one another. And he says, no, you're bringing those same divisions of the world into your church. And you all are the upper class are eating and they're, they've got the other ones out in the outer court somewhere eating their measly little meal. And you all are drinking the best of what you have. It should be a oneness. So what you're doing is, the reason you're partaking unworthily is, you're despising the very thing Jesus went to the cross for. That he is all and in all and you all are equal. Should have the same care one for another. And you're just obviously not showing that. And that's where he's got a problem. Paul repeatedly through different epistles, unity of the body is his top priority. Isn't it? And for good reason. I mean, when there's disunity and the world sees that, he says, they'll know you're Christians by your disunity. That doesn't seem to work. I don't remember that verse. Even in my New King James, I can't find that one. But by your love. If you would just put something there in 1 Corinthians 11 and just turn to Ephesians 4. Six verses there. Ephesians 4, verse 1, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I beg you, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And how should we do that? It's what we're talking about in Colossians with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. And what does he say? Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all, through all and in you all. So there he's saying it's one God that was in you all, and so you're one body. And he says you should endeavor, strive, verse 3, to keep the unity of the Spirit. Not a spirit of unity, but a unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Isn't that what he says? So when you go back to 1 Corinthians 11, he's saying that should be a top priority with these people. Verses 28 to 32, he's saying... But let a man examine himself, so let him eat of the bread and of the cup, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And for this reason, many are weak and sick among you, many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we wouldn't be judged. But when we are judged, we're chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. We do need to take that seriously. We don't always talk about that when we have communion, but we do need to see what are our attitudes towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. Are we creating division within the church by things we're doing, saying? And we have to each examine ourselves. That's not what he says. Don't examine somebody else, but we need to each examine ourselves. And hey, maybe you don't need to partake. I don't know. I don't have anything or anyone in mind. But if you would go back to Colossians 3, Paul has just said, but Christ is all and in all. When he comes to verse 12, he says, therefore, because of what I have just said, that you have taken off the old man, put on the new, and you've become, and here's what he's saying, you've become united to a group of people that are as diverse as the city of Toronto. If you've ever been to Toronto, you will never see a more international city on earth. <laughs> it's crazy. And he's saying, you're just like the city. You've got a very diverse group there. He says, therefore, Paul telling them, you're a special people and you need to show forth the life of Jesus and how you relate to each other. And that's no small thing to do. So what does he say to enforce? He says, therefore, as the elect of God. 
those chosen of him. And it's not because of anything we have done, is it? Nothing we have done, not anything we were, but simply that he loved us and he had a purpose for us. And what is the purpose that he has for us to be elected? That we should be what? Holy. Set apart for his use and his glory. And everybody wants to be the elect, be included. But we don't necessarily like hearing, if you're elect, well, you're elect for the purpose of being holy. And I could give a ton of scriptures for that. I'll just quote you one, Ephesians 1, 3 to 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And listen, he says, just as he chose us in him, in union with him. When did he do that? Before the foundation of the world. That, and that is a purpose word. The purpose is that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Like I said, everybody wants to be the elect chosen by God. Well, if we are, he's saying he's got one purpose in choosing and electing you, not just to save you from hell, but to make you holy. And not just that, but he's saying here in Colossians 3.1, as the elect of God, holy, not just holy, though. What's the next word with that? Where the election includes what it includes unto holiness. But it's not like it's this life of no joy, no whatever, can't do anything. He's saying holy and beloved. So he's elected you not only to make you holy, but also to pour his love out on you. It's both, though. It's not an either or. Everyone wants to have experienced God's love and blessing. But he's saying you need to be holy, and that is how you'll experience but his love. But that's what he's elected us for. I mean, that's really no small thing. He loved us and had a purpose for us. We're supposed to be little Jesuses. That's what this is all about. That's our new identity. We're in union with him. He's trying to conform us to his image. That's his purpose, not trying. He's going to if you're his. And also so that then when you're like Jesus, he loves us like he loved his son. We went through all that, didn't we? Because we're in union with him. We, he loves us with the same love. That's what Christianity is all about. Holy and beloved. The thing like to make a point here about this is, he says because we're the elect, he's going to tell us now that we should act in certain ways. And here's a question. You're saying, how does the doctrine of election, God choosing us, not us choosing God, how does that produce holy living? And here's the way Paul's explaining this here, because all of the grace, and it took a lot of grace in God electing us, that he bestowed on us and electing us, he's saying we should show that in kind to one another and to others. Think of what all he had to do to us and how God had to treat us when we were disinterested, wicked, hateful, hating God and hating other people, sinners. Here's the things he's asking us to do, but that's what he did to us as being his elect. Being his elect, he had to have compassion on us, didn't he? Before we could ever believe in him or ever trust him. And he was kind to us, wasn't he? He, he didn't give us what we deserved. He was kind to us. And the way he drew us, he didn't beat us into the kingdom, did he? He was gentle. He was meek. And think about how patient he was with us. First time you heard the gospel or how many years did it take? God patiently drew you to him. And that's all of the things bearing with us 
in your rotten lifestyle. That's all of the things he's saying. Therefore, you, you're the elect of God, holy and beloved. Then that's what he had to do to make you elect. He's saying, then you need to be that way towards others, especially within the church. We didn't receive from God's hand judgment that we deserve, but we receive from God's hand grace. We receive compassion, kindness, gentleness, meekness, patience. And he's saying we should in turn do the same for our brothers and sisters. It's that simple, if that's simple. Because we know it's not, is it? Relationships can get complicated. What he's saying here, the elect will wear clothes that meet God's dress code. We'll put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he says. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on. He goes on to tell us what we're going to put on. You know, Thomas, my son, works at UPS, and they have a dress code there. Their dress code is business casual. That's what he told me. I reaffirmed it last night. That means business casual. Now, that doesn't, he said they used to have to wear a suit and tie, but they don't have to anymore. I mean, when I worked at an insurance company when I was 20, everybody wore a suit and tie that worked there. But now it's business casual. But what that means is, though, that he can't look like a college student going to work. Business casual means he can't wear flip-flops in the winter, shorts, and a t-shirt. He's got to come in there. He's got a certain dress code. He's been chosen to work at UPS, and he needs to dress the part. And that's what God's telling us as his elect. I try to dress the part, but I'll have to confess, half the time I cannot dress myself. I have to depend on grace. Don't we have to depend on God's grace to dress us? Because it's the grace of my wife and daughters. Because I try to put on colors a lot of times that don't work. And I'll go to them. How does this look? Dad, does this work? No, Dad, let me tell you. Let me get your tie. That's, that's what I'll hear from my daughter, Michelle. And here's the point I'm trying to make. The world is always trying to get us to put on the wrong tie. Anger. Lust. Speaking against others. And Paul's saying, no, you got to put all that off. Don't let the world dress you. Don't be conformed to them. He's saying you got to dress smartly. You got to dress in a way that shows who you are, that you are in union with Christ. He's saying, so dress, put on, he's saying, his graces. And I'm thinking of getting this picture. You put on the Lord's graces, that's going to be a shirt with a lot of fruit on it. And I thought, this is a bad joke, but it'll be tasteful. I'm sorry I couldn't resist that one, right? So what are we going to be? What is he talking there? He says, first, he says, put on tender mercies or compassion. And that's a word that's used of Jesus many times. Many times in the Gospels we read he was moved with compassion. And when that happened, it caused him to show the second grace, which was what? Kindness. See, just one example I'm saying, he looks at the leper. He looks at that leopard. In the sight of that man's misery, it says he was moved. It stirred something on the inside, moved with compassion. God is not unmoved by our misery, especially his children, is he? Anyone's misery for that matter. So that word for tender mercies there that it talks about, put on tender mercies, is two words. And one means your inward parts and the other means pity. Hearts of compassion or pity. We have the same word for compassion is used about the Samaritan that is on the road to Jericho. And here he sees this man attacked by the robbers and it said he is left half dead. 
And it said he had compassion, pity. He's moved when he sees that. But yet the other two, we know the story, the priest and the Levite, they could look on that. That guy was probably moaning, bleeding. And they could just look on that and they had hearts of stone towards him. They had their excuses. They could just walk right on past. One went clear on the other side of the road. And he's saying, if you're the elect of God, holy and beloved, you're not going to do that. You see somebody at church that's got a real need, you're not going to be like, oh, I've got plenty to do, or they live on the other side of town, or whatever. I mean, that guy, when it's the Lord moving in you, that's Samaritan. This was an enemy, and it says he's moved with compassion. He went to great expense, effort, put him on his donk, took him there, pay whatever it takes, gave him the visa card, just run up whatever you need to. In essence, what he did, and that's what he says that we should do, because pity, if it's from the Lord, will bring action, won't it? And that's the love of God. That's what he's talking about here. You know, William Booth, I read this. William Booth, he was the founder of the Salvation Army back in England and a few years back. Well, when he died, by the time he died, he was buried with high honors. Royalty, the queen, came to his funeral. And here's the queen sitting there, and right next to her is this woman who's shabbily dressed. And when the casket of Booth came by, she put a flower on the casket. And the queen says, well, how did you know him? And the woman's answer was simply this. He cared for the likes of us. She was probably a prostitute or a street person or homeless because that's what the Salvation Army did. They had mercy and they showed kindness towards the rejects of England in the day. The drunks, the prostitutes, the homeless, the orphans. God powerfully blessed their ministry. I'm not talking about today. The early accounts of the Salvation Army, God's spirit rested on those people. And he was doing a work through them. Smith Wigglesworth was involved with them early on and recognized the anointing on them. But he goes on in verse 13. Look what he says there. He says, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Even as Christ forgave you, you must do. So we need to bear with one another and forgive one another. And to bear means to put up with. But he doesn't mean to do it with an attitude, does he? I'm just putting up with you. <laughs> it's not going to be that way. We are going to have to put up and bear with things because you put people like us together that are all different and people have different ways of doing things. And what he's saying there is really that word for forgiveness is the word gracious. We need to be gracious and forgiving, overlooking things that would upset us because we know, well, everyone knows it shouldn't be done like that when you see somebody, you know, you got to be or they do you wrong. He's saying you got to be gracious and forgiving. He's saying if anyone has a complaint against another and what Paul's saying is people are going to have complaints. Believe me, they do because I get phone calls. Not every day, but I get phone calls. It's not a problem. The complaints will be there. You may have a complaint against somebody. Somebody may legitimately do you wrong. And the thing is, it's not that. It's just how we handle them. Because this gets back to two of the fruits he mentions earlier on. We have to have an attitude when someone does us wrong or does something we don't like, whatever, that an attitude of humility and meekness towards the situation. So I'm going to set aside my rights, my opinions, and I'm going to take the mindset of a servant that's what's going to happen when meekness and humility are there. I'm not going to feel like I'm privileged royalty that can get my way. We don't want to be the complainer that's constantly offended. 
So there is this guy <laughs> placed in a monastery. Every five years, they're saying, every five years, we will give you the opportunity to say two words, and that's it. So after the first five years passed, he was called in, and he was allowed to say two words, and his two words were food bad. Went back. Another five years went by, brought him in again. His two chosen words then were bed hard. Another five years, total of 15 years, they bring him in again, and his two words then were, I quit. <laughs> and the bishops responded, well, we're not surprised. You've been complaining ever since you got here. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> so I'm not laughing at my own joke. I didn't write it. I just read it. But I think it's pretty funny. <laughs> we don't want to be that guy or gal, do we? Complaints, quarrels, grievances, they're going to happen. But we need to forgive others, as he says, as we have been forgiven. So let me ask you, do you think God has ever had a complaint against you? <laughs> I'm sure he has. I'm telling you, I wouldn't want to see the complaint list against me. Just show me a few at a time, Lord, so I could deal with them and then deal with me in tender mercy. and <laughs> Help me to deal with others the same way. He goes on to say here in verse 14, there's one piece of clothing that's going to hold everything together. He says, above all these things, put on. Here's something else you need to put on, the last thing. Love, which is the bond of perfection, the belt of love. Without a true love for God and others, all of the other graces that he talked about, they could be artificial. I mean, there's a lot of people that are kind, but not for the right reason or the right motivation. It's got to be from a love of God, the God of the Bible, and the Lord Jesus Christ, and from that, a love for others. The love that Jesus demonstrated on the cross, that's the kind of love we're talking about. A holy love, that's going to hold everything together. Kindness, compassion, long-suffering, etc. It's going to hold it all together. In verse 15, Look what he says there. He says, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you also were called in one body and be thankful. When he's saying the peace of God to rule, he's saying that should be the guiding principle whenever we're faced with difficult situations, which we will. The word literally means an umpire. Someone that's going to direct, control, rule your heart. If we could, I think that's best described, just another way of looking at all of this, if we could just go back and we're just going to read Romans chapter 12, certain verses there. So if you would just put something in Colossians and turn back to Romans 12, we'll start in verse 9. Romans 12, verse 9, he says, let love be without hypocrisy, be real. Lie not one to another is what he said back in Colossians. Be real with others. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continually steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints and given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble or the lowly. And don't be wise in your own opinion. Isn't that what we were just talking about? He says, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. And he says, if it is possible, it's not always possible. He says, as much as depends on you, 
live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. Thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. And do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Go back to Colossians 3, and how is that going to happen? How is that going to happen? He tells you here in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Letting the word of Christ dwell in our hearts richly. It's got to dwell there, not just visit and leave. And that comes by reading, thinking, and meditating on the word. There's a lot of times we can just read because it's our duty to read. We got to read, but it can really have almost no effect on you when you do that. The principle all through church history has been not just to read, but to read and meditate. Roll it over in your mouth like you get a Hershey's Kiss. You could just swallow that thing in one gulp if you wanted to or bite into it and be done with it. But you let that Hershey Kiss just roll around your mouth and enjoy that chocolate and let it go on for a while. And that's what he's saying we need to do with the word. You got to meditate on it. Let it roll around in your mouth. And then through that, that word of God dwelling in you richly, that's how you learn. That's how God opens up your understanding and things become more than just a sermon or something I've heard or a cliche or whatever. It becomes part of you. And that's what he's saying. The other thing he says, we need to sing the word with grace in our hearts to the Lord. Isn't that what it says? But the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We're singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. The grace in our hearts for what he's done to the Lord. Psalms. We sing a lot of psalms here. They're great. Spiritual songs and hymns. Music is critical, isn't it? And it's got to be scriptural, though. Not influenced, like a lot of music today, by the false gospel that's being preached. Then, when you do that, when it's scriptural music, there's music I've heard. I've heard a song on hell that was great. It was just a, a tune that you could sing to. The words to it, when you think about it, they're convicting. And that's what he's saying here. You're teaching and admonishing one another as you sing scriptural songs, whether it's psalms, hymns, or spiritual songs. The other thing is, he's saying you have to sing what if everybody came in and they either didn't sing and it was just Ben, what would that do for us? It's like with prayer. You're at prayer meeting, pray so I could hear you. If everybody came to prayer meeting and whispered, it'd be like, we could do this at home. The reason I'm saying that is whether it's worship here, when the Lord's presence is here, everyone's singing, aren't they? It's, it's easy then, but you feed off of that. How can you be teaching and admonishing me if I can't hear you? Amen. That's how the Lord works. That's how the Spirit moves when we can hear each other. So we've got to be here. Paul wrote it. I didn't write it, but he's saying that's what we should be doing. Singing out loud so we can all hear and we can all enter in together. And all of that, God works to teach and admonishing one another. That's what we just read there, isn't it? He sums it all up here at the end. What does he say? Whatsoever you do, verse 17, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We're his representative. He's in us. And everything we do, we're supposed to do in his name, like we're his representative. And if you think about what he's saying there, doesn't that change everything? 
Our conversations need to be done in the name of Jesus. If you're having a conversation to somebody, with somebody, about somebody, that's when you would need to say, if, is this how Jesus would talk about Ethel, Bill, Sally, whatever name you want to say? Everything you do in word and deed, do it in the name of Jesus. Would Jesus go and visit George that's in a trial? Would Jesus pray for Sam or would Jesus watch a movie? To do everything in word or deed, do it in the name of Jesus or his representatives. In the name of Jesus. To sum up the last three weeks, he's telling us how do we live as Christians. That's what we've been talking about for the last three weeks. And the first thing is we have got to really understand and let it sink in. That's why I kind of drug this on for three weeks, could have done it all in one. But every week we're talking about what? This new identity that we have in Christ. We have to see that, a new identity. We're not just somebody, get this out of our thinking, that said a prayer back then and now we just enjoy the world the best we can. You'll never find that kind of Christianity in the New Testament. You might find it in America. And he's saying if we're truly Christians, we are one spirit with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are one flesh with him. Everything about him should be everything about us, shouldn't it? It should change everything about us. Isn't that what we've been saying? Any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. I'm not going to quote that whole thing again, but we know that. Which means anything, Paul was saying by implication then, anything that doesn't agree with that union, that oneness, has to be put to death or taken off. That's what we talked about last week. Any clothes of sin need to be shed, taken off once and for all is what it's saying there. Not put it in the corner and then put it back on because it really doesn't look that wrinkled. We all tend to do that, don't we? And at the same time, he's saying too that we're not just people that don't do things. It's just not this negative take off and you got to sit at home in a straitjacket. It's no, it's you take off, but you're also, there's a rhythm to it. You're taking off and you're putting on. Put on the graces of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says it in Romans 13. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Wear his robes of righteousness and then act like that. We talked about this Zechariah 3. Joshua the high priest. It says he was clothed with filthy garments standing before the Lord. And it says in Zechariah 3, Then God answered and spoke to those who stood before him saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him, Joshua, he said, see, I have removed your iniquity from you. Taking those filthy clothes off. Not just the sin, but also that sinful nature. And he went on to say, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And that's what we've been given to wear. Rich robes from the Lord. And that should cause us to act a certain way when we're wearing the robes of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should act like him. And when we do that, then we will show mercy, loving kindness to others, we'll be meek, long-suffering, and we'll live in a way that wants to please him. That's what it means to be a Christian. And we'll do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen? Amen. That's the message for today. All right, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for speaking to us, Lord, that showing us what it means to be a Christian. And thank you for your word. And I ask, Lord, that you will cause the word that we've heard today to dwell in us richly. I trust, Lord, that it will bear fruit. 
A lot of times we sow the seed, might not see results, but you say someday all of a sudden it'll spring up, Lord, and at times you do allow us to see it spring up, and we thank you for that, Lord. We trust, though, that it's your word and your spirit and that you will be the one to produce fruit. And all those that hear, and I ask, Lord, that you make our heart good soil, that it produce good fruit, and that we can all hear you say one day, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And I thank you for doing that work in us in Jesus' name. Amen.